Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, it's the Fed Scoop News Countdown, the three most important federal news stories of the week, as selected by two experts in the federal government community. It's Friday, June 24th, 2022. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. And today, my experts in the federal government community are Karen Evans, partner at KENT Partners, former eGov administrator at the Office of Management and Budget, former chief information officer at the Department of Homeland Security, and Dave Pounder, executive director of the Center for Data-Driven Policy at MITRE, former director of IT issues at the Government Accountability Office. Welcome, friends. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you for doing this today. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for having me, Francis. And we start the countdown as we always do with... Number three! Karen Evans, your choice is the third most important federal news story of the week, is the uh, top Senate Democrat talking about privacy legislation. Why is that important to you? Where are we in privacy and government now? It's not something I've heard much discussion of lately. And that is why I'm highlighting this story, because uh, there is a lot going on, but it never seems to get over the finish line. And uh, we were talking about some of this recently about what was to me, the big thing in the EGOV Act, and those were privacy impact assessments. And I think that's probably the last big change that happened as it relates to privacy and data online and privacy issues online. And so there's been a lot of different ideas going back and forth. And this one is uh, out there. Uh, I think a lot of it is related to people are looking at now how industry is using uh, data, right? Private industry. But there is so many forces behind the scenes as it relates to privacy and how this goes forward about really trying to get one across the line. And what struck me on this one is Senator Cantwell's one comment here about you can't have a weak federal standard. And one of the challenges going forward whenever you start really looking at all of these privacy uh, issues is every state has something different, which causes a lot of issues, right, going forward. And if you're going to do a federal standard, which would preempt the states, then it has to be a meaningful standard. And that's why everybody keeps debating this and nothing has gotten across the line. But I do think it's important as we continue to roll more and more technology out, more and more applications applications out that people are aware and that we are ever vigilant on what is happening with the data and people's personal data. Dave, Senator Cantwell said you can't have a weak federal standard, but at some point, is it necessary to have some federal standard at least and and maybe start with something and work on it? Yeah, I think definitely, Francis. I think you want to, you want to get it right the first time, but you know, with many of these, this legislation, you know, if you get it out there and then you can, you know, improve it over time. I, I look at what's going on like with FISMA right now. Uh, you know, we've, pu- we've pumped FISMA out last time was 2014. There's some bills that are currently being worked. They still need some definite work on that, Francis. And we've issued some papers talking about strengthening, you know, that th- those bills as an example to more align with the good stuff that's going on in the administration with the EO and the ZT guidance. I still think there's a gap where the administration policies are ahead of what's going on in Congress. So, but but again, it's it's still like FISMA. There's still some good things that come out of FISMA, but we can greatly improve it. Historically, Dave, is that a reasonable strategy? Does Congress do a decent enough job, given the fact that there's churn in the membership and the the issues that people care about on the Hill? 
do they do a good enough job at going back, not specifically about privacy necessarily, but just broadly, uh, and revisiting this legislation and updating it as appropriate, or are they kind of always behind the curve? Well, I think they're playing catch up frequently. FISMA is a good example. The other thing too, Francis, and you know this, I mean, there's so much compromise that goes into some of this legislation. So with some of the compromise, you get some weakening of things at times. And, um, you know, I think right now, if you look at the leg, Karen, you'd mentioned uh, before we got on the air here, the uh, Legacy Reduction Act is currently being worked. And, you know, we need to measure turning systems off. You know, that legislation right now doesn't go that far because there was some compromise. I would love to see as that one gets worked that we kind of push that forward. Uh, but again, that's why we need to make sure like FATARA, okay, 2014, there's some good discussions going on right now in Congress about FATARA 2.0. And I think we need to do that so that it's not like, you know, another, you know, 15, 20 years before we have another uh, IT uh, legislation that's on the books. Karen, how would you measure the impact of privacy legislation, or does it depend on what the actual privacy legislation turns out to be? I think the impact is huge. That's why I highlighted this. And I also think what is important is uh, this is a bipartisan piece of legislation. So that in itself is noteworthy going forward, right? And so to Dave's point, it's how do you negotiate around the edges so that you can continue to move it forward? Um, like I said, the last big one was the privacy impact assessments. That's 20 years ago. So people debate this back and forth. What's the right thing? What's not the right thing? I, I do think that something needs to go forward. There's a lot of things that happen internally within the, the federal government as it relates to the Privacy Act, which dates back to the 80s, because these all build upon one another as they go forward. But I just think as um, technology is advancing so fast and we have capabilities like machine learning and artificial intelligence, that we need to have a statute in, in you know, a line in the sand, a federal standard going across the board that really helps move our nation forward. And states can do things that are more stringent. But for states that don't have anything, then this fills that gap going forward so that everybody realizes, okay, here's the, here's the basement. Um, I can always go to the top floor in my state, but I need a basement, you know, going across the lines for states that don't have something. So um, I'm encouraged, even though it says she's blowing, um, you know, that this is woo, a significant blow to it. I'm encouraged because it's still bipartisan that the House is still pushing uh, for it and that she's left the door open in order to be able to go forward with another a change that has to happen. Karen Evans' choice is the third most important federal news story of the week is privacy legislation on Capitol Hill and uh, the chair of the Senate Commerce Committee talking about her position on it. Dave, your choice at number three this week is uh, from fedscoop.com. And thank you for allowing us to celebrate this, for choosing this, because we've named the 2022 selections for best bosses in federal IT. And this wasn't us. This is the community nominating people and then voting on those nominees and it's a, a pretty comprehensive list i think government and industry and uh, a lot of superstars on this list yeah no doubt francis I, I i love these recognition awards where we highlight you know the best in government we need more of that when you look at this list it's a strong list of leaders 
those that have a reputation of delivering that are accountable. But to be voted as best bosses, if you look at like, for example, 21 of the 50 best bosses are CIOs. You know, we talk a lot about the workforce attracting, you know, more IT and cyber talent to the federal government. Well, a lot of that has to do, it's tied to mission. People want to work on these good missions, but they also want to work for good bosses. So when I look at these uh, CIOs that are highlighted here, and you're right, there's some that have, you know, a lot of experience. You could go down the list from a Dave Shive and a Guy Cavallo, Ann Duncan, Lord Nossenberger, Gundeep and Sonny, right? I mean, we got, some of them, we don't have, have to say their last name. You know, by- <laughs> They're like Madonna. So, yeah, exactly, <laughs> right? I was thinking of Madonna, Prince. Okay, we could we'd go down the list of uh, the single names. But again, folks that really deserve the recognition. But I think it says a lot that we can actually tackle this workforce thing with some of these good bosses. The other thing that I love, Francis, in addition to the CIOs or the government-wide positions, you know, with the DDM at OMB, with Jason Miller, and then you had Flair that was recognized as the federal CIO, and Krista Russia, federal CISO, Jen Easterly at CISA. So those government-wide positions are really important, too, to attract the right folks into those very important roles. Karen, uh, this is a situation you found yourself in, recognition like this. What does this mean to you when somebody receives a recognition like this? Well, I, I was excited that Dave picked this story as well um, for a whole host of reasons. It means a lot when you're being recognized as a good boss, right? Because sometimes you have to make, and actually not sometimes, all the time, you are making decisions and one group of people are happy with your decision and the other group of people are unhappy with your decision. But if you're recognized as a fair person going across the board, right, to be a good boss, um, I, you know, that, that is huge that, cause you can get awards, like there's a bunch of different awards throughout the federal government. And I mean, just all kinds of things. And, and those are, are either team awards or, you know, for your accomplishments, but this is how do I manage the people aspect, which is probably the mo most important piece of your job is managing the people aspect, which is what um, David is really highlighting. And so I think that it has a lot of meaning from that perspective. And the government-wide perspective in those um, positions, those are always tough because Claire has to make tough decisions. Chris has to make tough decisions. Um, and they're not always well-received. So for the, uh, the recognition to happen that they're good at what they are doing and managing the people part of their job, I think is phenomenal. And we need to celebrate people's successes because it's easy um, as we go through some of these other stories to highlight people's challenges or failures um, and they're sensational so good news stories need to be amplified the reason i was excited that you chose this dave beyond the fact that it's from fed scoop so of course i love shameless plugs for my uh, own organization's work um, both of you guys were instrumental i think in the not just not the creation of this exactly, but the reason that we recognize this as an organization. And that is, Karen, when you were eGov administrator and Dave, when you were GAO and involved in put, putting the Fatara scorecard together, it's both of the efforts that you undertook among the work of many others 
are responsible for driving what I now find when I talk to any CIO on the record or off the record anywhere in the federal government, the number one thing they mention when they talk about challenges or wishes or this is my priority or whatever is has nothing to do with technology. Yes, they talk about cyber is important. Yes, zero trust is important. People is their most important priority. How do I keep the people that I need and how do I find more of them? Um, Gundeep was on the program, oh, I want to say a month and a half or so ago, and almost the entire conversation revolved around his workforce, not around what he was doing with this or that or some other technology. And so what, Dave, you in particular, because you were so instrumental in the Fatar scorecard, and what does this mean to you that the discussion has evolved in the way that it has and that these non-technical things have become so important to these CIOs not to check a box or to get a score on a scorecard, but because they understand how important it is to mission delivery. Yeah, I think, you know, Francis, you're spot on. I think when you look at mission de delivery, it's about leadership and it's about the people who are delivering it. And when you look at these leaders, too, the other thing, I mean, I, I love that they're recognized as these top bosses, but they also have found a way to navigate cultures and still deliver. Because every agency, we've talked about this for years, has unique cultures and challenges. And I think when you look at navigating those cultures with the right people, you can still accomplish a lot. And I know we're going to talk about some other things like this USDA thing that I can't wait to talk about, because it's so exciting when you hear about some of these uh, initiatives that it, it just kind of blows your mind some of the things that go on in government. And I think it's great that we can highlight some of those things. But again, it's back to the people and it's back to these leaders. And, you know, you mentioned Gundeep. The other thing I will mention, there are a number of folks on this list that have been around a while and that tenure thing does kind of matter. But I was also encouraged when you had like a Kurt Del Bene at VA, who's, you know, someone new to government who's getting recognized right out of the gate. So you know, I, I like those stories, too, where it's a mix of those that are seasoned and some of the, the new folks that are joining the federal workforce. Dave Pounder's choice is the third most important federal news story of the week on this week's FedScoop News Countdown is the announcement from FedScoop of the best bosses in federal IT 2022. You can see the entire list of all these folks listed uh, in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The 13th year of Fed Talks launches August 24th. High-level leaders in government, industry, and academia, including some of our best bosses and federal IT folks, will offer lightning talks, keynotes, and fireside chats. It's going to happen at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City, and you can find a link to learn more and register in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. And we are up to number two. And Dave, because you're so excited to talk about USDA, your choice at the second most important federal news story of the week is my colleague Dave Nichapier's story at fedscoop.com. TMF board announces $94.8 million for three network security projects. A lot going on recently with the TMF. What jumped out at you as far as these three awards in particular, Dave? Yeah, so... Not a lot of money here, Francis, overall, 95 million over the three projects. The USDA one really jumps out at you. So th this is a effort to improve our network infrastructure. So a couple things, right out of the gate, you upgrade our network infrastructure to align with what we're trying to do with like the ZT principles, right? So one, you get huge security improvements with this network infrastructure program. 
The thing that I found amazing, Karen, and I'm going to go back to this, you know, consolidation and turning things off. They're collapsing 17 networks down to a single network. And then the kicker is they're claiming that they're going to save over $700 million on this consolidation from 17 to one. So you're investing 65 million up front and saving over 700 million. That's quite an ROI, Francis, when you really look at it. And then the third thing that jumped out at me when you looked at, at the USDA initiative, it, you know, this network modernization is one of the things that is tied to is speedier food safety and inspections. So when you look at our food supply chains, there's a number of things that have slowed down the food supply chains, but if you can get the inspections quicker, that's something that's going to help with the food supply chain longer term. So again, it's about better security, you know, it's about these huge cost savings, and it's about, you know, really helping with our food supply chain ultimately. It's a great story, and I can't wait to watch them deliver on it. Well, and Karen, you got to believe that that's in that is in process. That that delivery is in process because Gary was on the show not too long ago, and he's talking about the fact that they're that this is like their fifth or sixth award from the TMF. It's the biggest one that agriculture's gotten. It's the second biggest one that anybody's gotten, according to the quick calculation I did uh, on the website of the TMF. What do you think that? agriculture's figured out about this. I mean, when Dave lays it out there, I guess it's pretty obvious that you're demonstrating huge potential ROI. But Gary was talking about the fact that the first, I think the first two projects they did, they've already paid the money back. And that strikes me as the best way to build rapport. Is that what you think the board saw, Karen? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Dave uh, laid out the business case, right? So I'm, I'm going to put my former OMB hat on on this. Uh, and of course, as an OMB person, I'm a little skeptical about payback, right? And the numbers associated with the payback, especially when you're saying that you're going to collapse 17 networks. Um, so when you, you, know, you start looking at this and say, hey, is this really true cost savings? Because that would mean that these budgets would actually have to reduce. Their operating budgets would have to reduce. And that gets back to the payback part that you're talking about, Francis. So, you know, Gary has uh, figured out, like, I really got to pay this back because they're getting, you know, hit by GAO audit saying, yeah, you're giving out this money. Um, and then there was an audit that says, but the payback piece, like, you know, people are overestimating their ability to do the payback piece. So with Gary um, actually paying back the first two and taking, you know, the uh, crawl, walk, run type of approach into this and really getting um, back to the people part and the leadership part that we were previously talking about and demonstrating that success so that everybody knows you can achieve it right? And see those pieces. He becomes a proven entity to the TMF saying, hey, he's a good investment because he's got that triad down, right? He's got the people, he's got the leadership, he's got the culture, and he's paying it back. So that that is key on all of these projects is the ability to pay back the TMF because there's a lot of money. The concept is a great concept. Um, and I think a lot of the concern that congressional staff have is this becomes um, augmentation of the regular budget process. And it should be things like, I know this sounds terrible, Dave, 
But, um, you know, network infrastructure and doing stuff on network infrastructure and network modernization, I mean, that's part of the regular budget process. I told you I just put my OMB hat on yes. here. And so, um, you know, what wasn't working in the regular budget process that they had to go to the TMF? That's the piece that I'm really interested in and pulling back um, some of the onion on that because we have to fix that problem because the TMF should be uh, being able to fill gaps in between the regular budget appropriation cycle. Dave, what, are the, what I think is exciting about the USDA award, and I don't mean to give short shrift to DHS that got uh, $26.9 to upgrade the Homeland Security Information Network and the Federal Trade Commission getting uh, about $4 million to do a cyber operations center as a service project. They, those are good projects too. But what I thought was really cool about the USDA project is it strikes me this is a long-term play potentially strategically by the TMF board too, to be able to say, we don't just do $5 million projects. We don't just do $10 million projects. This is one that's $64 million. It's going to save uh, $734, according to uh, Dave's story. And then you can really go to Congress in out years with a success story and say, don't just give us $300 million. Give us a billion dollars again because we could do 10 $60 million projects and save 734 now that we've got a demonstrated track record of success. Am I thinking about it too hard, Dave? Or is that, do you think that strategic uh, element is behind it? No, I think, you know, this is an, and, I, and Karen, I appreciate your comments too, because I, I've said this all along, the TMF, it's great that we have this billion and we're allocating the billion. Will we have that going forward? I think the most recent proposal is 100 million going forward for, you know, out years. Uh, so I do think you want to demonstrate that you can have this payback. But Francis, I will tell you this, some of the use of the TMF funds, even if there's not a payback and you have a massive improvement in security and mission delivery, so be it. I mean, I like the relaxing of the payback. Uh, the 700 million plus, I agree with you, Karen. Wow. I mean, I, I was like, holy. Yeah, I was, wow. If you, if you got half of that, we'll take it, right? If you right. got half of it, we'll take it. But Karen, you brought up a point that I think is really important. You can't count on the TMF going forward. And you really need to make sure that these budgets reflect agency needs on modernization and the like. And the reality is, you know, many year, year to year, what we do, it's kind of a block and copy from the previous year with tinkering around the edges. And you don't make the real sound business case to bump up, you know, our budgets in certain categories. We need to get away from that, especially when you look at like ZT and what we're trying to do there. Will the cyber budgets be enough going forward? Likely not. So agencies are going to have to make that strong business case, not necessarily rely on the TMF. Dave Pounder's choice is the second most important federal news story of the week. The Technology Modernization Fund Board announcing $94.8 million for three network security projects. Karen, your choice at number two this week is uh, also from FedScoop. Uh, some success stories about the TMF. This one, not such a success story. It's John Hewitt Jones' story headline, Draft Watchdog Report Shows Flaws in VA's Cerner EHR Rollout harmed at least 148 veterans. There's an element here of this story that I think is striking, but uh, what, what, what do we do at this point? Because this is not just an IT project. This is the, the care of some of the most 
important citizens that we as a country value the most for their servicing to the country that are at risk because of the challenges to an IT project. Exactly. And this is the point that Dave's been making through each of his stories about mission support, right? And so um, information technology is an enabler. You know, technology as a whole is an enabler. Uh, the reason why I picked this story, which also then led to another story later on in this week that actually says that VA has put a hold on going forward with this project, which I think, again, this business need has been around, uh, you know, like for 20 years. Like we have been trying to solve this business issue for 20 years. Um, how many starts and stops have we had? And to your point, Francis, this affects the most important part of what we're trying to do is the support mission needs of veterans, right? From DOD coming over to VA. Like, how is that seamless so that they can get the care that they need after the service to our nation? And um, that, that to me is a critical mission need, but we've struggled with this. Um, and I think it gets back to the very first story that Dave was picking on, um, which is also the leadership culture issues. And so, when you dive deep into the system, and now we're back into budget issues, right? And Congress has supported VA in multiple ways with authorities and budget to solve this issue. Is you have to dive deeper into what is the the architecture, and it hasn't changed, right? They have the Vista system where a lot of the logistics and everything are, and then you have the health record. So it's the health record in the VISTA system, but it's really how do you manage the business processes of a transfer from a person from DOD into the VA system? And what other ways can we then speed up getting them the healthcare? And you've seen some of this stuff, right? Like, okay, if it's not critical stuff, then they can have vouchers and go out to local providers, right? And then that has to feed into the system. And so it's really mapping out how do we want to deliver care and with that transfer from DOD to VA. They've tried multiple things like the Joint Program Office, which was in legislation. They've tried, but at the heart of this, it's how is the doctor delivering the service and how does the veteran have to get to the service? That has to be documented and all these business processes and all the culture issues that have evolved around this, you know, the, they have regional offices, they have VSOs, they have a bunch of different things that could be leveraged to do this. You have to really sit down and map it out and say what can be done in these small chunks, which kind of gets back to the whole point where we were talking about what are you measuring and the accountability and then how to be able to go forward. Um, because this is mission need. And um, I was a little sad to see the IG report because I was hoping with this last go around that we were going to get uh, some success going forward. Dave, there's three things here that I want to ask you about. One is I note in uh, John's story at fedscoop.com details of the report. This is a draft report, not a, not a final report from the VA Office of Inspector General obtained by the Spokesman Review newspaper based in Spokane. So that's, I mean, you've probably had reports that you published over the years. Drafts were obtained by outside sources before they were ready for prime time. So that's one thing. The second thing that struck me, Oracle President and Chief Technology Officer Larry Ellison 
said the company would work to modernize Cerner's Millennium platform. Oracle just bought Cerner for $28.3 billion. It's striking to me that this has worked its way already, all the way up to Larry Ellison, who is like one of the huge names in the history of information technology in the 20th and 21st centuries. And the third thing is, I keep reading stories about how DOD's rollout of Genesis is continuing apace. Like the Coast Guard says, they're already done implementing their piece of this. And I, I want, and nobody seems to, and I'm not asking you to answer this because nobody else can either, but I wonder what it is that is the DOD is having at least accomplishment, if not success, because who knows what challenges they're facing. And VA is struggling so mightily with this rollout. I know that's a lot there, Dave. Yeah. Pick out whatever no, no, you no. want to address. But Well, I, I'll start with the third thing that you mentioned here when you mentioned DOD's recent success. You know, if, if you look back, uh, and I had looked at the initial when the EHR program was set up at VA back when I was at GAO, when it was just getting going right out of the gate and testified on it a little bit. And at the time, if you you know go back and look at what's happening at DOD, they had similar struggles with many of their initial rollouts. Uh, they're kind of they they're they're kind of more in sync now, and things are kind of clicking along. But I always thought that you know the lessons learned from DOD and applying that to VA early and really looking at what happened to try to avoid some of those hiccups that they're experiencing. Uh, and and you know maybe we still need to do that. Karen, you mentioned pausing the program. Uh, but, you know, DOD, it wasn't like it was smooth right out of the gate. They had some major challenges initially, and they found a way to kind of manage around it and got within a nice rhythm. So that's what I think really needs to be there. You know, the whole notion with Oracle buying Cerner and the attention, I mean, this is a big project. It's important for our vets. You don't want this black eye right out of the gate after acquiring a Cerner, right? You want to get this fixed immediately get the right management in place. I think, Karen, your comments about the business processes are spot on. I mean, is the tech that difficult? The new tech isn't that difficult. The legacy systems that are tied to all these business processes is a mess. And another reason why, you know, we need to continue to, uh, to tackle these legacy systems. Now, on the outside sources, Francis, I found that interesting because I had a lot of reports I wrote at GAO that got leaked. And, you know, they were leaked by... You know, sometimes congressional committees, sometimes we had people within agencies that leaked reports. Um, and, you know, I was GAO, you know, there were so many tight controls on that. It was really more like Congress or the agency leaking things for various reasons. Uh, but, yeah, that I found that interesting, though, the draft report, because when you look at that draft report, I mean, sometimes I'll, I'll be honest with you, sometimes draft reports, especially if you're not having an agency, respond to you appropriately. You write it a little stronger than it comes back after they respond and it gets toned down a little bit. That happened all the time. So I'm curious to see what this final report's going to look like if it's still this hard hitting because it's pretty bad right now. Uh, Karen Evans' choice is the second most important federal news story of the week is from fedscoop.com. Draft watchdog report shows flaws in VA Cerner EHR rollout harmed at least 148 veterans. You can find that uh, in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. And now the top of the chart this week. Number one. 
Karen Evans, your choice at number one is uh, a federal cybersecurity rotational program now in place. We talked about workforce and teased that a few moments ago. This is your choice at number one. What will this do and what does it look like? Does it look familiar to you at all? Well, it looks very familiar to me because the ECOV Act had the ITEP program in it, um, and we were working at that point to close gaps, uh, you know, going forward about how we could have rotational assignments, right, into the federal government from private industry and back out, general general types of things so that we could do modernization efforts. A lot of things that we've been talking about today. I'm excited about this because as you know, Francis, when I retired the first go around, I've been working on cybersecurity workforce issues. And so um, I'm, I'm excited that this is here. I'm thinking, you know, in the years since that first piece sunsetted, because there was a whole lot of history behind that, uh, that we can figure out what the right way to do these rotational assignments um, can be so that both sides can benefit, you know, both private industry as well as uh, private sector, because everybody is facing a cybersecurity workforce issue. Everybody is. And we have to grow them from multiple sources. And it's not really helping us out a whole lot when we're poaching from each other. And so, you know, I, I, I know I'm not like our shattering news, but a lot of people who come out of the intel area, you know, with cybersecurity or law enforcement like FBI, you know, they do a really great job of recruiting them and pulling them over into private industry. And so we, we don't even have, it's not necessarily money or mission either because the missions have blurred because of the way that we're doing things with critical infrastructure and defense of the nation and that the threat landscape has changed. So that, that interaction and that rotation, I think is really critical to bring in new ideas and to make sure that we can keep all the skills up for both sectors so that we can take this whole of nation approach for defense because we really want to shift the paradigm, right? Like we want to get ahead of adversaries. I keep telling everybody we've got respond, recover down. We need to shift the paradigm to detect, protect, and it's going to take all of us. And so I'm excited about this. I'm a little, again, it sunsets in five years. So, um, you know, I'm going to everything that I can do from the outside is going to push to get this going so that they can learn a lot so that they can ask for the extension, because I would hate for it to sunset by um, and then just having the rules come out like two years from now. So, Dave, Karen used a word there that is the only thing that I see here that is a potential downside to this. She used the word poaching and the way this program is going to work. Cyber pros can accept a one year assignment at another agency. They can get a 60 day extension mm -hmm. how does this not become a poaching program where somebody at one agency says i'm just going to take this other person under this program and you wind up still having the same kind of churn and attrition that we're seeing now at least they're not going to the private sector maybe but you're still having people moving or what's the benefit to agency b when agency a takes a person on assignment well, you know, Francis, the way I look at it is if you look at the cyber shops at the different departments and agencies, they're they're uneven, right? There's some that are stronger than others. So when you have individuals, I almost see it the opposite way when you have strong folks that can go into an organization. You know, Department A has a really strong cyber shop, and there's some folks that are going over to help strengthen. Now, 
could they end up becoming a leader in that shop over time? But again, I think that creates some good opportunities for some of our stronger cyber folks to populate them at other departments and agencies. So, so, so I'm encouraged by that. I think that could actually work out well. I do think the tracking of this is really important when you look at this overall. This is like a this is a good role for like a federal CISO to really look look at a macro picture. Where are people going? Where do we need more of it? Where do we need less of it? Where are we not getting the right outcomes? Karen's point on the the ITEP stuff that occurred in the past, you know, where we had rotations between the government and the private sector. Uh, that was always well intended, but I think historically, when you looked at it, it was more the private sector coming into agencies and not enough federal agencies going out to the private sector. So from that aspect, we need to make sure that that's a two-way street and it isn't you know, just a one-way street. I actually looked at that in some detail uh, when I was at GAO and we found that it was you know, too much private sector coming in. And you know, there was a notion, are they coming in really to help? Was it to get intel? And you got to back up and look at the purpose of these programs, you know, to share, you know, the best practices between the private sector and uh, government. Same thing applies, Francis, too, when you look agency to agency. Let's share the best practices and get better as a whole nation, as Karen mentioned. Uh, Dave, so, oh, go so ahead, Francis, I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt. No, okay. So the one, the one thing that I think, um, and you said it, that the benefit that this will give, um, because it also says GAO is supposed to do a report to Congress within three years, so it's a forcing function. Um, but you you hit the nail on the head, um, and also Dave did by having Chris DeRocha look at this. The idea is, I think, to really look at where do we develop these centers of excellence, and it's the precursor to really making um, shared services work across the board, right? Like the foundations are there. Not every agency needs to build a security operations center. Not every agency runs a good network operations center. And so what this will be able to do is have people build those skill sets and then who really is the strongest one in certain areas so that when they go back and you fill the gap, that they can provide that shared service. I mean, you know, I always use the Marine Mammal Commission. They should not be building out a bunch of this, right? But the, but they should be able to get services from larger agencies who have the infrastructure and have the people to be able to provide that service form so that they can continue to do the mission. Um, Karen, you nailed what I was going to ask Dave about, and uh, and that is the GAO is supposed to look at this. I have a technical question, Dave, and I apologize if this is a dumb one, but does normally in legislation like this, does the legislation prescribe what GAO is supposed to look at? How much of that do you determine, do, you, do your colleagues at GAO determine what they report back on and how they report back on it? Yeah, so typically when GAO gets asked to look at something in legislation, Francis, there's a high level objective of what you want to look at. But then there's typically negotiations with that committee of jurisdiction on the specifics. And to be honest with you, and I know we're going to talk about my next, uh, you know, sometimes those specifics change over time too, appropriately, depending on, and, and you need to dance a little bit on that. You don't want it set so hard in stone in the law, you want to make sure that there's a negotiation with what Congress is really interested in looking at. 
Uh, Karen Evans' choice as the most important federal news story of the week is the establishment, thanks to a signature from President Biden, creating a, a federal cybersecurity rotational program. Dave, your choice at number one this week, I forgive you for the bias that you demonstrate in your choice as the most important story of the week. It's a GAO report, and, and I respect that. And uh, I, I admire your uh, former, uh, I admire your colleagues uh, at, that are still at the Government Accountability Office. 15 programs out of 25 major DOD IT programs had department-approved cybersecurity strategy. Only 10 uh, had submitted a system security plan for information and communications technology supply chain risk management. Tell me what this really means so I can maybe understand more of why it's a big deal. Yeah, so first of all, uh, looking at my former employer, Gene Daddaro, you always gotta show him a little love, Francis, right? So- Fair enough. Add and get that out there. Gene's a good, a, a good guy and they serve a good mission there. When you look at this, this is a annual review that GAO does on DOD's business IT system. And they're big things. I mean, some command and control, it's healthcare systems, it's financial management, okay? Typically, Francis, this review has been cost and schedule. Okay, are they are they within cost and schedule? But if you look at what this review showed, one was let's start with your question on cyber and supply chain risk management. They actually looked at whether these acquisitions at DoD were incorporating cyber and supply chain risk management early in the acquisition cycles. That's what we want to do, right, Karen? I mean, we always talk about building. Absolutely. So instead of just looking at cost and schedule, GAO is saying, hey, are they doing this stuff from a cyber and supply chain perspective early in the acquisition cycle? So that's one. The other thing that I thought was really cool was they looked at operational metrics. So again, wasn't just cost and schedule, but are they actually delivering on what they're expected to deliver on? And the third thing, Francis, and you'll kind of say I'm a nerd because I get excited over the IT dashboard, but I think the IT dashboard is such an important accountability tool. All, you know what GAO did? They took these 25 projects and DOD was supposed to report on 170 operational metrics and they didn't report on 95. They just didn't report. It was blank. So the th when I look at it, you're looking at operational performance, use of a transparency tool, building in cyber and supply chain risk management, well beyond what I've seen historically with this review. And this is a mandated review that you asked about, Francis, right? Report on cost and schedule. I'm sure the GAO team went up there and said, you know what, we ought to report on these other things because they're important. Uh, if we're doing shout outs, I'm heartily endorse a shout out to Gene Dodaro. We also should uh, shout out Kevin Walsh who uh, was the leader of this report and is the, the name on the, on the publication of it. Karen, it strikes me that just the fact that we're now keeping track of these things then, the way that Dave explained it, just the fact that they're tracking supply chain, cyber, and so on, instead of just cost and schedule, is the real mover here. Maybe, I mean, the numbers don't look good for DOD, but at least now we have a benchmark, right? Well, it, exactly. So it's so funny. I, I figured uh, somebody else was going to pick this, but actually this story, because I wasn't sure who was going to be my partner on this, but yes. this story caught my eye initially, and I actually sent it out to my team internally to um, the Cyber Readiness Institute. And I said, oh, look at this. You guys need to read all this because it, um, you know, 
now Dave is going to think I'm a nerd too. I subscribe to GAO and I look at all the reports to see what they're measuring. Yes, you are and a nerd then, Karen. That's yes, true. I am a nerd. And I really got excited about this one because um, to Dave's point and to your point, it's focused on supply chain risk management, right? And looking at uh, where all this stuff is coming from. And those of us who have been working on this for years, we've been concerned about the supply chain and what happens. And now you're seeing it in real life. Like we couldn't get chips, right? So people are like, oh my gosh, cars and all this other stuff. Well, this affects everything that the government does. And so to just um, make certain assumptions through acquisitions that things are like going to be there um, it is, is faulty. You know, and and so for GAO to really be looking at what is the supply chain to me is very forward leaning. It's it's really trying to bring that whole planning cycle uh, into focus for leadership because the expectations, especially for Congress, is always about the cost and schedule, right? Like it's always about the delivery. But if you don't properly plan up front you're never going to be able to deliver on time. And supply chain is, is huge. And the risks associated with that, and I put cyber into that, um, I thought this was, uh, I really, I know I'm not, people are going to think I'm nuts. I enjoyed reading this GAO report, not because of the numbers, but because of the fact that they were being very forward leaning in the analysis and looking at the DOD program holistically. So it helps all aspects of DOD. So that whole cycle about planning and execution and accountability was outlined in this report. Um, there are people that think you're nuts because you love reading stuff like this, Karen, but not many, I don't think, in this community. I think we all get it. I appreciate your uh, candor. Both of you self-identifying as nerds. I mean, that's, <laughs> that, that to me is the best thing that has come out of this week's FedScoop News Countdown. Uh, Dave Pounder's choice as the most important story of the week is the Government Accountability Office work on supply chain risk management, cybersecurity, and DOD programs. And that is it for this week's FedScoop News Countdown. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get it every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows. Karen, Dave, thank you very much for joining me. It's great to have you on the program this week. I really appreciate your time and the energy that you put into choosing your stories and talking about them with me today. It was fun. Yeah, thank you. The, the Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher help me put it together every week. The entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast back Monday. Until then, have a great weekend, and thanks very much for listening.